0: All right, let's go to the scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Now go ahead and read this for us. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering Sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and then dive into God's word for today. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as your people and also perhaps just your seekers wanting to hear from you. Uh, And God, we ask that you would speak and that you would teach through your word. And here, may we find something that is eternal, something that is unchanging, something that cannot be corrupted. Uh, may we begin to indulge in our eternal Sabbath here uh, because you have the words of eternal life. So open our hearts, open our ears. May we hear from you and you alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're making our way through the book of Hebrews and um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're nearing the end of it. We're entering chapter 10 now. Uh, it's a difficult book, but you know, uh, congrats for making, um, making it through to this point. And what we've been hearing time and time again from the author of Hebrews is that through Christ, we've come to see the true purpose of the Old Covenant, largely written about in the Old Testament. Turns out both the Old Testament and the New are pointing to one central thing, and that is... Jesus and and that He is better and that He is all we need. Uh, From the call of Abraham all the way to Exodus to establishing temple worship and the animal sacrifices, the ceremonial laws, all the priests, all the prophets, all the kings, they were all meant to point us to our need of Christ. And this is why after His resurrection, it says in Luke 24, Jesus said, Or Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, the disciples, in all the scriptures, things concerning himself. So all 66 of the books of the Bible are about Christ and his gospel. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the better Adam. He's the better prophet. He's the better king. He's the better priest. He's the better temple. He's the better curtain in the temple. He's the better lamb. He's the better Sabbath rest for God's people who will... Enter into the better promised land, the eternal one. That's what the past nine chapters of Hebrews have been about. And today's passage, it kind of brings all of that to a very grand summary, a summary conclusion of a sort. And then what's going to come after this is more practical matters in how we live this out as a church, whether you are Jewish Christian living during this time when this was written or a Christian today living in America. For now, the author is giving us a, a grand sweeping summary of what's what he's been teaching the, the Jewish Christians. So I have three big words I want to throw at you um, as a way of outlining today's you know, massive passage, and hopefully that will help you, um, I mean, for one, understand the author's purpose here, and, and second, help you remember these points as you meditate on it throughout the rest of the week. So here are the three things that we're going to be considering. Uh, an impossibility, a singularity, and a liberty, okay? Impossibility, singularity, liberty, all right? Here we go. Uh, Point number one, impossibility. Uh, Look at verse one again. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Here's the author saying again that the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New, or the the law, the Torah, and the gospel of Christ is one being a shadow, the other being the true form. Or as, as I've been saying, one's a brochure, and the other is the actual destination. And to be more specific, according to the author, the Old Covenant is a shadow because it's a system of worship that requires the same sacrifices to be offered year after year, repeatedly, which the apostle says it can never take away sins. Never make perfect those who draw near. Right? Never. That's the impossibility. Okay? Verse 2 uh, drives this home even more. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Right? So his logic here is, if the repeated, continual sacrifices could have taken away our sins, wouldn't they have stopped at some point? He's raising this rhetorical question, which means what? Logically speaking, the fact that these sacrifices had to be continued by everyone at all times means they never took away sins. It's impossible for them to take away sins. In fact, he says in verse 3 in these sacrifices, there's actually a reminder of sins. Okay, the temple worship. Uh, Temple worship consisting of animal sacrifices, burnt offerings, not only did they not remove people's sins from them, it reminded them of their sins. It reminded them of their weakness, reminded them of this repetitiveness. And so, he states it very plainly in verse 4 it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's the point of the repetition its weakness, not its sufficiency, but its weakness. Now, think about the implication of that. This means even if you were to repeat the system of worship and keep this law, perform this temple worship in the Old Covenant for a billion years right, and offer a billion animal sacrifices, it will not remove one ounce of sin from you, not one. Okay? That's what the apostles are trying to tell the Jewish Christians. And no doubt that would have been a very radical thing to hear. He's trying to tell them, you and I need a better sacrifice. We need a better covenant, which God provides, which the prophet Jeremiah talks about at the end of this passage and that he quotes again for the second time in this this letter. Look to the new covenant, the new covenant, not the old, where we have Christ as our priest, Christ as our sacrifice, and Christ even as our temple. The curtain torn in two. If you recall, it says is in Hebrews 9, 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, it says he entered through the greater and more perfect tent, referring to his body, something not made with human hands, and it's something not even of this creation, meaning there's nothing in all of creation that can remove our sins from us, ever And the author, the apostle, is trying to free the Jewish Christians from this notion that their their freedom from their sin depends on their performance and their their level of sacrifice. And this is liberating, not only to them, but to us. You have to think about how liberating this is to us. We can stop, you can stop doing whatever it is that you've been doing, thinking that's what's going to atone for your sins. That heavy task of making yourself right with God, you can give up now. Right, Spend your energy on something else. Stop wasting your time trying to draw yourself nearer to God by your works and your sacrifices. It's meaningless. It's got to be the Son of God, become flesh, offered up as our sacrifice on our behalf. That's what it's going to take for any of us to stand before the holiness of God. Stand before Him in such a way that won't get us snuffed out like a candle when we stand before God and His holiness. And, and this is the part that tends to get some people. Like, you know, why, can't, why can't we just stand before God as we are? You can, like, I can just stand before you, right? And you're okay with that. Why is God less tolerant than you? Isn't he supposed to be loving and accepting? Why, why do you have to have this special qualification? You see, all of that really stems from a very very false assumption that God is more or less like you and me. That God is more or less like you and me, and nothing can be further from the truth. Just a, just a couple of days ago, and I, and I think this might illustrate something like this, um, NASA released a video, made from the Hubble telescope, uh, of this time-lapse video of a supernova. It's this massive, massive explosion that happened some 70 million light years away. If you travel at the speed of light, it will take you 70 million years to get there. That's how far away it is. And someone had first noticed this explosion in 2018, and it took a whole year, until 2019, to take consecutive photos to capture that single event, the supernova event. It's a huge project. Now, what's interesting is from the video made from the Hubble telescope, the explosion looks like a little flicker of light on the, on the screen. And you can watch this on, on YouTube. But here's what's really amazing about that. The star that exploded was so massive that the brightness of the explosion is estimated to equal the brightness of guess how many suns? Five billion suns. Five billion suns. That's how bright the explosion was. And and the immediate thought I had as I read that, first I had to do a double take because I thought I read it wrong. The immediate thought I had after that was, I am so glad that this event happened. 70 million light years away from me. I was nowhere near that thing. Because if I was, I would be snuffed out without a trace. And and yet here's the thing. That supernova is literally, literally just a flicker of light to God. He created that star and trillions of other stars by the word of his mouth. That supernova is but a speck in the overall canvas of his creation. And so the point emerges, right? If you cannot even stand before what to God is a mere flicker of light, what makes you think that you can personally stand before God himself and not be snuffed out like a candle? What makes you think you can draw near to the brightness of God's holiness and his majesty when you cannot even stand before the brightness of five billion suns, which to God is just a flicker? It's not at all an accurate perception of who God is. His grandness, His transcendence, and His majesty to think that you can somehow just hang around God just as you are. It's impossible. It's impossible. But see, the good news is, it is possible with Christ. If He covers you, if He represents you, if his blood cleanses you, you are united with him by faith, and you can literally stand before the throne of the Almighty and say, Father, I'm here. I'm home. Let me sit at your table. Let me eat with you. Let me dwell with you. With Christ, that's possible. Because Christ is better in every way. He's, he's the better priest, the better sacrifice, the better temple the better tent of meeting. What's impossible for us becomes possible with Christ. That leads us to the second point, and and it's related. It's concerning the singularity of Christ. It's got to be Him. He is singular. The payment for your sins and mine must be made by the Son of God and nothing else. Uh, It says in verse 5, Consequently, meaning this is why, this is a reason, Christ came into the world. He came down because there was no other possibility for our salvation. When he came, he came with this message, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Um, What's really interesting about this is the apostle is quoting Psalm 40. So it turns out Psalm 40 is ultimately about King Jesus, not King David. And, and so this is, again, why it's important for us to interpret the Bible in a Christ-centered way, or, or we tend to miss the point of the Bible. The true message of Psalm 40 is that in light of Christ, God is saying, I don't desire your sacrifices and your offerings, but I've prepared a body for you, a singular body. That's verse 5. And then verse 6, again, God takes no pleasure in burnt offerings and sin offerings, right? repeats that. Again, right, I don't desire offerings. I don't take pleasure in your offerings. Right, the point here is so simple, to, to simplistic-sounding to, to reiterate, but since he reiterates, I feel like we need to reiterate it. If God is not pleased by something, should you A, keep doing it, or B, not keep on doing it? Boys and girls, it's B, Right? <laughs> That's the the simplistic point that the author is is making here. Stop continuing on with what God doesn't take pleasure in. And then verse 7. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, this is, again, Christ being represented here as the one whom all all the Bible, the scroll of the book, is written about. And then verse 8 When he said above, and that's, again, Jesus, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law, meaning this is all lawfully done by the people of God all throughout the old covenant. And yet, and yet, God is saying, I'm not pleased by all of that. That's not what I ultimately desire. So on the one hand, you have the Father saying, What I really want is not your sacrifices and offerings. On the other hand, you have the son sort of as a reply in conversation with with the father, saying, yes, father, so I'm going to do your will. I'm going to do something that actually pleases you. I have come to do your will. I'm going to accomplish what these people have failed to accomplish on their behalf. And that's what he's come to do, to fulfill the law for us, to fulfill the law for us for those who could not fulfill the law on their own. This is just reiterating the fact that salvation is impossible with man, only possible with God. God is able to do it. We're not. We're not able to help ourselves or save ourselves, and so God comes to save those who cannot save themselves, help those who cannot help themselves. And so verse 10, we see what the Son has come to do, how he fulfills the prophecy in Psalm 40. It says that we, that is, the people of God, Will have been sanctified through the offering of the body, singular body of Jesus Christ once for all. Not through the repeated sacrifices of animals, not through the burnt offerings, but through the single body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's finished by his offering of himself. There's no need for repetition, there's no need for addition. There's no need for any continuation by us. It's done. Christ has been offered for us as a single sacrifice, once for all, for all time. So, in conclusion, this is what we see in verses 11 and 12, whereas the priests of old had to stand daily in service to God. Christ, however, after offering himself up as a sacrifice, he sits. He no longer stands. Why? His work is finished. It's a single sacrifice for all time. And not only does he sit, he basically runs the priests out of their job because now the shadow can pass away since the real thing, the truer thing, and the better thing has come. Hebrews 8.13, the old has become obsolete and are ready to pass away. If you have Christ, his single sacrifice for all time, you have everything you need to draw near to God. But if you insist on repeating the old form of worship, of animal sacrifices and burnt offerings, you're insisting on remaining standing when Christ has already been seated, and you're insisting on doing the work and never really get finished. The work that can never take away your sins. The work that doesn't doesn't ultimately please God. What pleases God is not for you and me to get busy with our offerings and our sacrifices. What pleases God is for you to believe in the Son, who is better than anything and everything that we can ever offer up to God. That He is singular. To believe that, that's what pleases the Father, and that's the way to the Father. And the immediate application of this for the Jewish Christians was at least, you know, in verse 9... To do away with the first. Because the second has been established. To do away with the first. He doesn't even say, okay, keep the first as long as it's commemorating the second. No, do away with the first. The first is ready to vanish away. Because the second has come. If you want to draw near to God, you must draw near through Christ alone. Nothing else. Right. Did you notice that, that all you need, all I need, in order for us to be acceptable before God, to be able to stand before the holiness of God, to be able to just be here and worship Him in a way that's acceptable to Him, is through Christ alone? All you need, in a sense, is nothing. All you need is to realize that you have nothing you can actually bring of your own. And realize in that, the freedom of hearing Christ say, I have everything you need so you can stand before God. And think about what Jesus said when he said, I've come to call those who are sick, not those who are well. I've come to call those who are sinful and not those who are righteous. What does he mean? Think about what that means. The, the, the empty-handed you, the, the sin-riddled version of you, the, the broken-hearted version of you, that's the one I want. That's what he's saying. Not the one that you're trying to piece together and, and make it look alright. Right? right? The, the one that you're trying to piece together and look a bit more Christian and mature and, and holy and right. Not that version of you. The, the one that you're too ashamed to reveal to, to the public. That's the one that that's the one I want because that's the real you. That's the real you. Nothing in this world tells you that Everything in the world says cover it up embellish it put some makeup on that right cover that up with your resume Jesus is singular in this sense. He's the one who wants the truest form of who you are when you can see this then you see singular value you find in the son of god your savior and your redeemer the one who you can truly be yourself to and know that you would be truly loved as well you don't have to hide anything from him he is singular okay for those of us who believe this okay what should this mean for us now in the here and now Does this is as any implication uh, in the here and now and yes it does, and that is our liberty. That's our last point, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, if you look at verses 13 and 14, it's interesting there because there are two words there that at first don't seem to go together, but for Christians, they really do, um, and the two words are enemies and perfected, okay? Now, they don't really go together, and, and I say that because enemies implies we still have this battle ahead of us that that's, it's not quite done. It's not quite finished, right? And yet the word perfected means what? The battle is done. It's won. It's over. So which is it? Do we have a battle ahead of us that we have to fight, or is the battle already won? And the answer is yes. Yes to both. What verse 13 tells us is we're waiting now for the day when all the enemies of God will be utterly defeated, but for now, we're living in this in-between What's also known as the already and not yet phase, where the enemies of God are still around, sin still exists, and we're still influenced by these things. And if you if you have a hard time believing that spiritual enemies exist and that evil is is lurking around the world, just turn on the news, <laughs> turn on the news for a little while, and then turn it back off for your for your mental health and the emotional health. <laughs> Evil is around us, right? So so we're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, or in the Greek, the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Because the evil one still tempts God's people, causes them to lose their joy, causes them to forget their identity, lose their peace in God, forget about his salvation. There are things that the enemies of God can still do to influence us. But here's what they cannot do. They cannot undo what God has already done for you, which is He's perfected you. He's already perfected you. Verse 14 says, we have been perfected in Christ. And it also says, therefore, we are being sanctified as a result of that. Right? Meaning we're being purified, we're being changed, we're being matured more and more into the image of Christ, the sinless image of Christ. Now that we are Eternally secure in Christ and eternally a child of God, eternally represented by Christ before the throne of God, all that's left for us now is for us to be sanctified. It's a gradual process here on earth, but it's a done deal, once and for all, final verdict in the heavens. It's like, you know, the way I want my kids to obey me, obey their parents, so that they can mature more and more and conform to their parents' image. It, I don't want them to obey me because they need to become my children, right? I want them to obey me because they are my children. And they will always be my children, right? Even when they disobey me, they're still my children. And therefore, discipline kicks in, right? But it's not, it's not rejection, it's not condemnation, it's discipline. That's what it means to be perfected already in the heavens and now being sanctified here on earth. There is a battle that's already won, and, and therefore that empowers you to fight the battle here on earth. And this is where our liberty is found. It's the freedom to obey God, without the fear of ever being rejected, ever being condemned, ever being cast out by him. God will never unadopt a child. God will never unchoose one of his people. And, and, th- and that's a great assurance that you and I have to tap into every day. Otherwise, what, what will happen is your fear of failing God will keep you from even trying to please him. Your fear of failing will keep you from even venturing out there in obedience. The freedom to obey God lies in this, knowing you are perfected. And now all that's left is for you to be sanctified. The second liberty, the second kind of freedom we find in this is that you are free to obey God even even in the midst of your suffering, even in the midst of your pain and your loss, because now we know whatever it is that you are experiencing on this side of heaven whatever it is that you might be suffering on this side of the grave it's it can only sanctify you it can only contribute to you maturing and becoming more and more like christ it can never ruin you it can never derail you from your destiny it only matures you, only purifies you, only sanctifies you to be more and more like Jesus. That's an amazing freedom we have from the, the circumstances and, and often the, the suffering that surround us. In one of my favorite hymns, How Firm a Foundation, there's a verse that goes like this. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The suffering in your life is only going to consume the dross in your life. The things that you were bound to lose, things that were bound to decay anyway, while you, yourself, your soul will be refined like gold like Christ. And here's a third and final form of liberty uh, that I want to leave with you today. And that is your freedom in the work that you do or the studies that you do. Um, truth is, you know, without even knowing it, you and I both, we're prone to buy into the voices in the workplace or in the classroom that, that say to us, and I should say it whispers to us because it's not so audible. The voices that say, you still need perfecting. You're still not good enough. You still haven't proven enough. You aren't impressive enough. You aren't successful enough. You aren't attractive enough. You aren't rich enough. You're not comfortable enough. You need to be perfected still. As a Christian, you have to know that you now in Christ have the freedom to say no to those voices. In fact, if you're not able to say no to those voices, you're not living in the freedom Christ has purchased for you, And and I would encourage you to question whether you have actually received Christ as your Savior if this freedom doesn't exist for you. The freedom to say no to the voices that call you to be perfected more, more than what Christ has done for you, so that you can be validated further accept it more approved more than the way that Christ has made you acceptable and validated before God do you have the freedom to say no to these voices that condemn you and accuse you do you realize in Christ you have the greatest validation and approval in the universe that you can stand before the holiness of God right you can stand before you can withstand the brightness of a trillion stars that there's absolutely nothing more that can be done to perfect you further. Right? As Jesus said, it is finished. Do you believe that about you? And do you believe that in your workplace? Do you believe that as you enter your campus? Do you believe that as you enter just the living room where you parent your children? This doesn't mean that you, you quit your job or you, you, you you quit studying. Not at all. What this means is you can now work and study for all the right reasons and say no to all the wrong reasons. You can say no to, to working for the sake of proving your self-worth. And how often do we do that? Going to work to prove our self-worth. Working to secure your entire future. Working to please your parents. Working to impress your friends. Working to achieve some endless, abstract, selfish ambition it's now okay to stop running that endless meaningless race and run a different kind of race that's the freedom you have in christ you can now say yes to god's calling for you to work and to study or to enter into a relationship it is to please him it is to please your heavenly father it's to impress him it's to obey him and his commands to conform to his image. And it is also to love your neighbor as yourself. And this takes, it really takes daily reflection and prayer for us to be able to live this out. This takes wisdom and discernment, which we cultivate through our spiritual disciplines, the the most fundamental of which is spending personal time with God every single day. That's the most basic skill of a Christian. Right? In basketball terms, this is dribbling the ball. Right? Being able to stand there and dribble the ball. For a Christian, their most fundamental skill is to spend daily time with God in His Word and in prayer. That's breathing in and breathing out. The Bible calls this spiritual training. And <laughs> try, to, try to spend Try to commit to spending a little bit of time with God every single day. Make that your goal and just see how challenging that is. It's going to feel like work. It's going to take work. You will feel the burn. (laughs) You will feel the weight of that. It's training. But it's so needed. It's so necessary. For us to live in this freedom and it amazes me just even myself every time when i think about this that i can actually i can i'm actually capable very capable of of going through an entire day working just busying myself with tasks and not give god a single thought which proves to me what what does that prove to you when you can do that you can just work and work and work study 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 and not give god a single thought what does that prove to you it proves you're not working for god Proves you're not studying for him. Not if it's making you forget him, right? I've completely severed my work from God. I can say I I, want to work for the glory of God. I want to live for the glory of God. I want to study for the glory. You can say that all you want, but that can't be true if your work is what distances you from him. And it's certainly not true if your work is causing you to disobey him. Disobey his fourth commandment to take Sabbath rest. Disobey the tenth commandment to not covet other people's accomplishments. If we're serious about working for the glory of God, and not just throw that around like a Christian phrase that's meaningless, you have to go to God's word every day, rediscover the purpose of your life and your work. It's during that time of meditation and prayer that you realize that your hearts might be misaligned with God's heart, that your identity has been misplaced, that you've, been, you've forgotten that you've already been perfected. And so we, we regroup, we regather ourselves and focus back on who we are in Christ. Right? That's repentance, and that's rejoicing in the gospel. And then we're ready to live out our day in a purposeful way to please and obey our Heavenly Father, to live according to and not contrary to His commands. If you want to be serious about this, you have to be serious about your spiritual discipline. If you're serious about working or studying for the glory of God or entering into a friendship or relationship for the glory of God, you have to understand it takes discipline. It takes training in godliness to do that. It takes discipline to please God in all that we do. It takes discipline to mature as children of God. And this is not because we are trying to become what we're not. This is because this is what we are in Christ. Once and for all, we are, you are, I am, children of God. Let's practice that eternal identity now, with a little, with a little training. Start with just the practice of going to God's word and praying to him every single day, cultivating that, developing that habit of spiritual worship every single day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for the reminder of who we are, and we ask that you would help us uh, remember who we are, um, it's okay for the people in the world to struggle with who they are and live as though they have not been perfected and living as though they must obey whatever the world demands from them in order to perfect themselves. But we are not like that. We have been perfected in Christ. So, would you help us to live differently? Would you help us to live with this freedom we have in the gospel? Help us to work and study like we actually have this freedom to not please the world, but to please you and you alone. Spirit, would you help us to, to taste this freedom as we go to your, your word every single day um, and, and go to God not as though we're unforgiven, but as though we are because Christ has paid it all and his faithfulness to us will, will never end. Father, help us remember your promise to sanctify us. Uh, No matter what we're going through right now, help us to remember your promise to sanctify us, your promise to make us more and more like your Son, so that we can say at the end of it all, it is still well with our souls, and our faith is still in you, and you are still good. You are still God. Help us in these things, we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.